I'm glad y'all are with us today, both in person and online. I'm going to introduce our speaker today, which it looks like I'm introducing a TV because I am, and here's why. COVID is why. Um, uh, today's uh, speaker is Lance Michaels. As you know, we've been doing church in the city where we have been rotating pulpits uh, this Advent season with uh, some local pastors here in Asheville, and it has been awesome. Have y'all enjoyed this? I, I, I know I have. It's been fun seeing these going to their congregations and, and getting to experience worship with them. It's been a blast. Well, Lance is at the Grove. Uh, he is our new kid on the block. He has only been in Asheville for about uh, a year and a half. Uh, the Grove was formerly known as Emmaus, and then they changed their name and, and, uh, when Lance was here, and um, they're doing a great job. Um, and I wish you could get to hear him personally, but what we're going to do, Lance and I were talking this weekend, is we're going to do a COVID redo at some point uh, to where he and I are going to switch, uh, but not during Christmas, obviously. So uh, without further ado, I want to uh, help you. I'm going to pray and, and hope that you enjoy today's sermon. Um, let's Take this to the Lord. Jesus, you are a good God. And um, I praise you uh, that we have the technology to still hear and see Lance's message, um, even though he can't be here, because uh, I know that he wants to. I know that he wanted to speak words of encouragement over uh, this church, and, and I know he wanted to, uh, to be a blessing to this church and, and, and to teach your word uh, to this church, but we trust you. Uh, we trust what you're doing in and through these times, even though they are chaotic and, and they are crazy, and, and each day uh, really has to be a day on its own, which I think is actually kind of what you want for us anyway. And so, God, I pray that we will uh, enter into this time of worship, even though it may be different than what we expected, different than what we planned. Uh, Father, and we will see your goodness today. And we will see Jesus today, and I pray that we will be different when we leave this place um, because of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We are doing this series together. Uh, we're three weeks in now. This is the third week, so you guys kind of have a little bit of the idea. These, these songs in Luke 1 and 2, um, and they're all out of order, right? So, so um, Zechariah's song, which we're going to be doing today, is actually the second song in the, in the list, but this is your third Sunday. So I have no idea what your order has been, uh, but this is, this is where we're at today. And, and so we're going we're gonna to read um, just the song itself, and I'll give you some more of the background. But we're going to read Zechariah's song in Luke 1, verses 67 uh, through the end of the chapter. And so I will read this for us. I hear pages turning, so this is where I slow down to let some people get to Luke 1. Um, and then we'll read this together. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy 
of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, uh, which is a typical place where you send a child right out into the wilderness after they're born, right? Um, if you are new to church, new to Christianity, new to the Bible, the logical question here in this story, as I'm reading uh, from, Zechari- from John's dad, Zechariah, is what is the big deal about John the Baptist? I mean, if Jesus is the reason for the season, it, right, if he's the guy that, you know, the story is all about, that this, this Bible is all about, what's the big deal about John the Baptist? Why does Luke uh, go into detail about John's birth? Why does he go into detail about John's dad, Zechariah? Why is any of that important? If Jesus is the reason for the season, what is the big deal about John the Baptist? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back. Uh, despite what some modern-day uh, preachers might be telling you, uh, the, the Old Testament has meaning. The Old Testament has value. Um, not your pastor, by the way. just want to clarify that. Some of you look, were looking very concerned. Uh, that is not here. Uh, but, um, but we have the Old Testament for a reason. And I don't know if you realize this, but the, the Bible is filled with details that matter. There's just not throwaway words in, in God's word, and I'm grateful for that. And so, uh, in, in, a lot of churches in this season are preaching, maybe even today, uh, sermons about Christmas out of Isaiah chapter nine, seven to eight hundred years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And in Isaiah chapter nine, we read of, of a dark world in which there was great darkness, in which people walked in darkness. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean. Um, David, when he was just up here, the call to worship, we're talking about darkness, that there is a darkness in the world, that our world feels very dark. I mean, I know that, that COVID-19 has exposed a lot of that, um, but it is not, I mean, we were using this, this word exposed <laughs> in COVID-19 all your life. Were you exposed? Were you exposed? Like, that's, that's a fear that we have. Um, COVID-19 itself has exposed something, but it's exposed the darkness that was already in the world, that was already working in the world. And, um, but Isaiah 9 doesn't just leave us with the darkness. It gives a promise that, that into the darkness will come a great light. And then the rest of that section of Isaiah 9 talks about what that light coming into the darkness will look like. In Malachi chapter 4, which is the last chapter in the last book of the Old Testament, Uh, We're reminded that much like the sun, which rises to overwhelm the darkness, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is the anticipation of God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years that light will come into the darkness. Darkness is real. Darkness is a reality in the world, but a light is coming. This is their anticipation, an end to the darkness. But Malachi ends, the Old Testament ends with this very interesting verse about a promise that God will send one like Elijah who will be a prophet to speak into the darkness about the coming light, which is a pretty cool thing. Right? If you're standing in utter darkness and somebody all of a sudden just shines a flashlight in your eyes, pretty painful. The world had been a dark place and, and God, God is sending someone into the world to kind of like the, the, the sun as it crests up The light begins to come into the world and it gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And this is the picture that we have from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so here we have the last verse in the last book of the Old Testament is this promise that there's going to come someone who's going to say, hey, light is coming into the world. 
And then, silence. 400 years of silence. No prophecy, no promise, no instruction, nothing but silence. Then, after 400 years of not hearing from God, not hearing anything, an elderly priest named Zechariah is performing his, his priestly duties in the temple when the angel Gabriel shows up and tells him that he's going to have a son who will go forward in the power and spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, um, Zechariah and his wife, just you need to know, they're, they're somewhere around 70 to 80 years old. They got a little age on them. There's a few things that you're not supposed to do when you're 70 to 80 years old. Like when you're 80 years old, you're not supposed to play professional sports. Men, you're not supposed to wear deep V-neck t-shirts. You know, that's, you're not supposed to do that. And you're not supposed to have a kid. It's just not supposed to happen. So Zechariah, he, he's a common man. Yes, he's a priest. But as a priest uh, who is in the public sphere, um, Zechariah lived with this sort of embarrassment that he didn't have children. And I, I got to tell you, to be honest with you, as a pastor who had been in ministry for a number of years, not having a kid, um, not having children, we wrestled with that. We felt like, like there was an embarrassment with that. We wanted children. We didn't have children. We didn't know what God's plan was with that. We didn't know, like, is there something wrong with us? This is what Zechariah and Elizabeth lived with. He had been in ministry his entire adult life, and in the public eye, I mean, he would have known and probably taught the Old Testament scriptures that say children are a blessing from the Lord. And so to not have children, to be counted among the quote-unquote unblessed, was a bit of a reproach. In fact, that's the word that Elizabeth used. She used the word reproach. That, that there was a shame that they felt in their life because they didn't have what they felt like they probably needed to have, which was children, which were a blessing from the Lord, that they could point and say, see, God has blessed us. They didn't, they didn't have that. So along comes the angel Gabriel. At the ripe age of 80, Zechariah hears, you're going to have a kid, and he's going he's to be the, the forerunner to the coming Messiah into the world. What does Zechariah do? He doubts that. That doesn't seem pretty likely. Even with an angel standing in the room uh, as you're performing your priestly duties, he's kind of like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Like, and he starts asking questions. And because he doubts, he loses his ability to speak. For nine months, he watches Elizabeth's belly grow, and he can't say anything about it. Can you imagine waiting your whole life with this reproach, waiting your whole life, being in the public sphere, feeling this longing, wanting to have it, coming to the place in your life where you're like, well, that ship has sailed. It will never happen. Then you have an angel come and tell you, yeah, it's going to happen, and you doubt, and now you can't say anything about it. What, what, a, what a messed up situation to be in. So fast forward nine months, the time comes for John to be born, and everyone rejoiced with Elizabeth. But Zechariah still couldn't speak. John was born, and he still couldn't talk. Eight days after John's birth, neighbors and, and family members and friends all gathered together for a circumcision party, which sounds kind of weird to us, but that was a thing that they did. And um, it was actually a pretty important thing because it was obedience to the Mosaic law, which required that you circumcise a male child on the eighth day. This is a, as important to them as the birth itself, consecrating their son to the Lord 
and naming him. In their culture, children were always named after someone in the family. Always. They carried somebody in the family's name. Uh, they, would get, they, would, they would get their name. And so when, when, you know, after all this time of waiting, they find out, oh, you had a, you had a boy. The, everybody's thinking, clearly this is going to be Junior, right? Zechariah Junior. What's that, John? No, we said Junior. Who's John? Is anybody in your family named John? No. And so what they do is they think, well, Elizabeth must, you, you kind of must be, you know, you must be losing it. Let's, let's, let's find out from Zechariah what this, this boy's name is. So it's interesting that they, they make motions to him to get his attention, which tells us that Zechariah wasn't just mute, he was also deaf. He had been living in a tunnel of his own doubt for nine months. And so they, they wave at him, they get his attention, and they say, hey, Zechariah, what is the name of your son? And he writes out on a tablet, his name is John. Yohanan. Yohanan in Greek means the Lord has given grace. This is the moment when Zechariah's mouth is opened. It's not when his son was born. It's not, it, it, John had already come into the world. It wasn't then. This is the moment his mouth is open. He writes down on the tablet that which he had not believed prior, that John would be a forerunner for the light of the Messiahs. John 1 says there, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness about the light. He himself was not the light. He came to testify to the light coming into the world. Zechariah's mouth wasn't open because he believed that he was going to have a son. That had already happened. God opened his mouth because he believed the Messiah. The light from heaven was coming into the world, and his son was going to tell people about it just like God promised he would. In other words, he believed the gospel. He believed the good news about Jesus Christ coming into the world. Now, before we get into what Zechariah says in his song, let's just consider the significance of this moment. His entire life, he had served in the line of priests to present offerings to the Lord in anticipation of the long-awaited Messiah, but it's been hundreds of years. So you're a man who's lived with the reproach of not having children for so long. Then when the angel of the Lord comes to tell you that you're going to have a child and the significance of this child, you can't speak about it because of your unbelief. So for nine months, you're deaf and mute. What do you think that you would do if you lost your senses of hearing and of speech for nine months? What do you think that you would do? Probably think. You probably think a little bit. Right? You, you, you know, the, the noise of the world, the busyness of life, your ability to just function as you normally function without any dependency. You would just, you know, with, with all of that gone, and now you're in this tunnel, you don't have sound, you don't have speech, you, you would think. You'd pay attention. You'd start considering things that maybe you hadn't considered before. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his, in his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, um, it, this, it's, it's a fiction book. It's, it's kind of written from um, the perspective of a chief demon named Screwtape to his young apprentice nephew, Wormwood. And, uh, and so in these letters, there's uh, one, of, one of the letters, they're talking about this young man who is, they call him their patient. This young man is walking through the British Museum thinking. And Screwtape says to young Wormwood, hey, we cannot let this happen. 
<laughs> we have, we've got to interrupt this. You've got to get him out of the museum, get him out of the quiet, get him back out onto the streets in the midst of the noise so he stops thinking. Silence and solitude. Christ follower, if you're here today, there, there, there is a need. Maybe quarantine has, has kind of slowed down your busyness, but have you actually entered into silence to be with God, to listen, to think, to spend time with him, to hear from him? Have you shut out the noise at all? Do you have a rhythm of shutting out noise in your life? Whether you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus or not, there's no denying that we live in a dark world. There's darkness everywhere, and that darkness serves as a noise to drown out the thoughts in your head. You have questions, and God has answers. Zechariah's entirely, entire priestly life had drawn on the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. Yet, it didn't automatically kick in when Gabriel, an angel, shows up and tells him that, hey, all that stuff that you've been reading, it's coming true. It didn't kick, kick in. His instinct was to doubt. But now what he's about to sing is almost entirely Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah had been meditating so heavily on the promises of the Messiah from the Old Testament over these nine months of silence that it all came bursting forth the moment that his tongue was loosed. An explosion of joyful confidence in the sure promises of God. Some scholars have, have, have said that as many as 33 possible allusions or quotations from the Old Testament are represented right here in this short little song. So here we go. He sings. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah opens his mouth singing about a descendant from David. You know what's interesting about that? That's not his son. That's not John. You think a dad who hadn't, hasn't been able to, to speak for nine months, waited so long to have a kid, now he has a kid, when he finally gets his speech back, he's going to start just singing about his son. But that's not his son. His son is in the line of Aaron. He starts singing about Mary's son. He recognizes that, that as excited as he is about his son John, the greater importance of Mary's son coming into the world. So Zechariah's song refers to Jesus, the horn of salvation being lifted up. The Old Testament describes the strength of a people as the horns of an animal that is either raised up in victory or felled in defeat. In Psalm 75, 10, God says, I will cut off the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. In Jeremiah, we see the, the, the people of Moab described as, as having its horns cut off. In other words, they, they've lost their power. They've lost their strength. But here, this isn't just a horn of God's people. It's a horn of salvation. Salvation how? Well, Zechariah actually tells us in the song, salvation through redemption and deliverance. Redemption and deliverance. Redemption, while it would be incredible for the Messiah to just show up and simply visit his people, he does far more. He does what is necessary. The word redemption means to rescue at a high cost. The victory represented by this horn of salvation meant that there was going to be a cost to this for this salvation. Jesus would be raised up, yes, but it would be on a cross. It would be in his death, laying his life down. This would be the cost to redeem God's people, to pay the redeeming price for their very real sins. So the horn of salvation provides redemption, but it also provides deliverance. 
in Exodus 27, we see four horns placed at the four corners of an altar. Each of the four horns were, were covered in the blood of an unblemished lamb to make atonement for sin. Their purpose was to convey the power of God over, for, for salvation. So what that means is that this altar often became a place of, of refuge for people, sometimes fugitives, who were running, looking for mercy. They would run to the altar and they would lay their hands on one of these horns that had the blood of an unblemished lamb poured over it and they would cling to it. And as long as they were clinging to the altar, they were safe. And it was in this place that they would plead for mercy. In fact, in, um, in 1 Kings chapter 1, um, when, when Solomon is rightfully declared king, um, there was a guy that was actually out for Solomon's throne. He was trying to, uh, Adonijah, and he was trying to get Solomon's throne. And he was trying to sneak in there and take the, take the throne. And when Solomon was rightfully appointed king, Adonijah knew, hey man, I have messed up. Like, I, I'm in trouble. So what does he do? He runs to the altar and lays hold of one of the horns and pleads for deliverance. Not just deliverance in general, deliverance from his own sinfulness. The song continues. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, Zechariah references here a covenant from Genesis 15 that God made with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, if you've ever read it, it's one of these stories that when you read it, you're kind of like, so, so Abraham in Genesis 15 has this vision. Um, and in this vision, he, God tells him, I want you to cut these animals in half. And I, I, I want you to cut them right down the middle. I want you to cut them in half. And here's, here's all this instruction for what I want you to do with these animals. And when you read it, you're kind of like, this is one of those stories where like, if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, did I eat spicy food last night? Because this is super trippy, right? Um, it is one of these weird things. When we read this story, we don't really know what's going on. Well, this, this, this is actually an Old Testament version of a contract. This is, this is the way covenants and contracts were done in the Old Testament. They didn't they didn't have, you know, DocuSign like we have today where, you know, you just you know, buy a house and you can, you can sign on, online and, and, and take care of everything. This was the way that they made a covenant, um, that they would cut animals in half and both parties would walk through what, is, what, what Genesis 15 describes the pieces or the parts of the animals. And, um, you know, they didn't have their church planner uniform, but they did wear their robes back in the day. And as they would walk through uh, the pieces of these animals, the blood, and this is very, very gory, I get it, but they would walk through and the blood would stain the bottom of their robes. And as they walked through the pieces of the animal, they could look down and as the blood dried on the bottom of their robes, they could see and have this reminder that was with them constantly that I made a covenant, I made a contract with this person and if I don't hold up my end of the deal, let me be as one of these animals. Now, I've got to be honest with you. The people who come to my house to contract and work on projects for my house, I feel like this would be way more productive. Um, we would get way more done if we would do this than just sign a contract. But, you know, um, but this was the way a contract was done. Now, in the dream, in the dream, um, Abraham never walks through the pieces. In, in, in this day, it was always known if, if a servant made a covenant with a king, the servant was the only one usually to walk through the pieces because it, it was just understood the king's going to hold up his end of the deal. The, king, the king's going to be responsible for his part. The, the servant is the one who's in question. 
But in Genesis 15, the person who never walks through the pieces is Abram, Abraham. What does that mean? Well, it's God's way of saying, hey, look, um, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, let me be as these pieces. And Abraham, if you don't hold up your end of the covenant, let me be as these pieces. If I don't do my part, let it be my blood. If you don't do your part, let it be my blood. And we see here Zechariah recalling God's commitment to his covenant to be faithful. And he sings of the covenant that God made for Abraham, to Abraham, and he celebrates God's fulfilling of that covenant, that he knew that God's people had not made good on their end, and God was going to do something about it. He didn't know what it was, but he knew God was working on it, and he was going to do something about it. So he turns to his own son for two brief verses. Verse 76, and to you, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. If you read any of John's messages, any of John's sermons in the Gospels, uh, you'll see a very clear, consistent message in all of them. He says, repent and be baptized that you might receive the forgiveness of sins. It's not just that a Messiah would come in and rescue his people. It's not just that he would be strong and powerful. It's not just that he would be raised up as a sacrifice, but that he would forgive people of their sins. That forgiveness would be on the table. A way of escape, a way to have the terrible, awful, atrocious things that you've done in your life to be covered in his blood, to be forgiven of. The birth of the Messiah, the salvation offered, is for the forgiveness of sin. He finishes the song with this. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There had been darkness. Darkness in the world. Darkness throughout the, you know, throughout the Old Testament. And then 400 years of silence and deep darkness. Nothing but darkness and silence. Then into the darkness came a light, Jesus the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 2 Peter 1.19. Jesus is the morning star who rises in our hearts. Revelation 22.16. He is the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. John 8.12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen? The joy of Christmas is that darkness doesn't win. That light has shone into the world and has overcome the darkness. If you're, if you're here this morning, if you're listening online and you just feel the darkness of this season, if you feel the, the weight of, yeah, COVID-19, you feel the weight of quarantine, you feel the weight of uh, of, of an election year. You feel the weight of uh, the, the racism and the, the conflict that we have seen rise up in our country again this year. You, you feel the weight and the tension of all of these things. That is the darkness shouting out, but praise God, the darkness does not win. That Jesus has come into the world and that we have light. We have hope. We have peace. Now, here's the thing. All of that is wonderful and good. In fact, it's better than good. It's the greatest news in the history of the world. If you believe it. If you believe it. 
For those who believe, this is great news. But what about those who don't? What about those who, who, who at least struggle to believe? This is where I think this story of Zechariah is so important for us, especially in a year like, like 2020, um, where, where we are, some of you might be here today and you have just kind of pulled yourself out of bed. You have wrestled to get here. Maybe somebody is listening online and, and you're, just, you're just filled with doubt. And here we have a story of not just where God fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy completely and perfectly, including in the forerunner of someone who would come to testify about Jesus coming. But in this story, it speaks to the very real issue of doubt. It's interesting to me that, that when you read Luke 1 um, and you read the whole chapter, um, you, you see that both Mary and Zechariah both struggle with doubt. Mary doubts Gabriel's promise to her almost exactly the same way that Zechariah does, or at least on the surface. The question is very understandable, right, when you think about it. How can a virgin have a kid? How can two old people have a kid? Like, this doesn't make any sense. This, this is kind of crazy. Like, how is this even possible? But the, the weird thing is, is that, that when Mary asks the question, Gabriel just gives more information. But when Zechariah asks the question, he loses his ability to talk. So what's the difference between Mary and Zechariah? Well, I think, I think there is a, um, a kind of doubt that when it, it surfaces, it's actually seeking more information. You, you know what I'm saying? When you, when you have a doubt and, and you're wondering about something, there's a kind of doubt that you can kind of bring to the table. You have questions, legitimate questions. Like you want, you want answers and you're seeking answers to, to your doubt. There, there's a very real form of doubt that, that wants to believe if possible. But then there's the kind of doubt that, um, you know, regardless of what the answer is, I'm just not going to believe. There's the kind of doubt that is just, you know, it, it, it wants to hold everything at bay. I don't care what the answer is. I don't care how good the proof is. I don't care how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy are perfectly fulfilled. I'm still going to hold everything at bay, and I'm still going to doubt. I just will not accept the answer. The question why, how, is always going to be where I land. And no answer is good enough. Doubt. You might be here today and you might have doubt in your life. Doubt in itself is not a bad thing. Um, my, uh, my, my friend and former pastor used to say, doubt is like a foot posed. You, you, you always have the ability when, when you have a foot posed to walk in a certain direction. Um, doubt in itself is not the problem. What kind of doubt do you have though? Are you legitimately asking questions? Are you legitimately willing to work through your questions and actually find answers? In other words, are you willing to doubt your doubts? You might have doubts, but are you willing to ask the same question of those doubts that you're asking of, of the Christmas story? If you find yourself in the position of doubt today, I, I want to encourage you not to just become distracted by, by the noise of a dark world. Don't let your demons busy you from getting answers to your questions. Can you save yourself? Should you even have to save yourself? Should you even need saving in the first place? These are legitimate questions. If you doubt the horn of salvation, may I, may I at least challenge you um, to, 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 to think through and, and not just settle for simplistic alternative answers that actually don't have any weight or merit in and of themselves. I mean, our city, our city, Asheville, I'm learning. I'm still fairly new here, but I moved here from Durham. 
uh, I lived kind of halfway between Duke and UNC, and so I'm, I'm familiar in, in that area with a, with a culture of criticism, of questioning, of, of wanting, to, wanting to, to find answers. And so I was comfortable with that because at least in, in, the, in that environment, uh, you could actually have a conversation with someone and get some kind of footing on, on truth. And, and, uh, but I moved to, to Asheville, and it seems like everybody in Asheville is like, well, um, we, we just want to find answers in the things that we do well for the world. You, you know, so we put our hope in activism. We put our hope in, in being good people um, and, and having social awareness and being better people for our society. Okay? But is that enough? Is that sufficient? Is that really the answer? You realize that Isaiah, um, he doesn't, in Isaiah chapter 9, he doesn't say, from a dark world, a, a light has come. He actually says, upon or into a dark world, a light has come. That, that means that we cannot look within our world to find light. It's just not found anywhere in our world. This salvation, light, light into the darkness has to come from outside of us. It has to come from outside of our world. There has to be another source, not here. So statements like, well, you know, if we all work together, we can make the world a better place. No, we can't. We have tried and tried, and we continue to fail and fail. You might say, well, I'm a good person. Well, how good is good enough? You might say, well, my truth is my truth. So you've got your truth, and I've got my truth. What kind of answer is that? What kind of, what, what kind of legitimate thinking answer is that? <laughs> well, I'll just, you know, this will be my truth. Have you really thought through that truth? Have you really cr criticized it? Maybe the way that you have the Christmas story or scripture, have you really thought about your doubts? Have you really asked questions of your questions? Uh, Tim Keller, in, in his book, Hidden Christmas, he says this. He says, neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have even bothered with Christmas. Why? Because, well, moralism is essentially the idea that you can save yourself through good works, and this makes Christmas unnecessary. Why would God need to become human in order to live and die in our place if we can just fulfill all the righteous requirements on our own, if we can just be moral enough? So the God of moralism has nothing to do with Christianity. Relativism is essentially the idea that, that no one is really lost, that everyone should just kind of live with their their own rights and, and kind of determine right and wrong for themselves. But the story of Christmas and the message of John the Baptist isn't just, isn't that we, just that we're not moral enough. It's that we need forgiveness of sins. It's that even on your best days, before a holy and righteous God, before a perfect standard, where, where do you measure up? You've got stuff in your life, and everybody in here, maybe even from this week, walks into the room, people watching online, has stuff even from this week that falls short. But the reality is, is that we are sinners. It's not just that there are sinners out there and no sinners in here. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> it's that we have sin in our life, and we need forgiveness. There are things that I, um, men, you can, you, you get this. Uh, there are things that I have done uh, as a knuckleheaded young guy in my marriage um, over the years. And, um, and, you know, when you do those things, it's not like you can just snap your fingers and make your wife pretend, hey, that never happened. 
the endurance of my marriage, the benefit of my marriage has come through my wife forgiving me of the things that I've done. Now, she, only she has the power to do that. The reality is, is that we live in a world where you and I have sinned, not just sinned generically, not just sinned against each other, but we have sinned against God. And the only way that we can be forgiven is if he's the one who forgives. The reliable truths of hundreds of prophecies in the very real life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ aren't just cute ideas to be entertained alongside of Santa Claus and his reindeer. They're historically validated truths that aren't just in, for intellectual banner. The very real Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born exactly the way the prophets foretold. Jesus is our redemption and our deliverance. He's the horn of our salvation held up on a bloody cross. The price paid for your and my very real sin. Don't miss the message that John came to preach. Repent, believe, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. This is such good news. Darkness doesn't have the final say. Light has come into the world, and it's not just shown light out in the distance somewhere. It has overwhelmed the darkness that you and I could be completely covered, that our sins could be washed out. We could be made whiter than snow, made completely clean. This is the beauty of what John came to foretell, the beauty of Jesus coming into the world. This, they looked forward, we looked backwards, and praise God that it all came true exactly like God said it would. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word that always proves true, that 100% of it proves true. God, that 100% of your word is reliable. We can trust you that you're a God who doesn't just give us bits and pieces. God, you have given us your word that we can trust, that we can look to. But God, thank you that your word points us to Jesus, that John pointed us to Jesus, that Jesus, that you are the horn of our salvation, our redemption, and our deliverance. God, I pray for anyone today listening that doesn't have this deliverance, that doesn't have this redemption, that has been living, um, just accepting the gods of relativism and moralism, that they would realize that they can't be good enough and that there is truth. There is truth. And that's what we cling to this Christmas season. And that's what we offer, God. And I pray that they would receive the gift of your son coming into the world as the forgiveness of their sins, hung up, raised up on a bloody cross, killing their sin, rising again to give us new life. God, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this season that we can remember you're coming into the world. Thank you that you're coming again. In Jesus' name, amen.